0: Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, and we are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks to our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Central Iowa's premier good food store. Gateway brings together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Hey, thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music. Lots to talk about today. Let's start off with a quick update on the carbon dioxide pipeline situation. So Bold, Iowa, of which I am the director, was the first entity to be approved as an intervener. And there are quite a few interveners. And what that means is you can go to the hearing and ask questions of witnesses. Now, the first two weeks were witnesses, uh, were landowners who were uh, upset about having to run the risk of being having their land condemned to build this thing, last week's witnesses were provided by the pipeline company, and I had a chance to um, to question three of them. Uh, one of them was about uh, economics. I mean, you know, of course, the, the you know the summit is going to present the most rosy economic picture possible. All the wonderful things that the uh, pipeline is going to do for the community, for the state. And you know, of course, they missed a whole bunch of things. <laughs> so uh, I pointed out that you know, you know, the the whole project is contingent upon these forty-five Q tax credits. That's it, and it's hard to estimate exactly how much that, that's going to be. But at least thirty billion dollars, bottom line estimate, thirty billion dollars. And so you know, that's that's money that the the taxpayers. When I say federal taxpayers, I mean taxpayers, whether you're paying, you're going to be paying at the state, local, county, and the federal level. That's money we have to pick up. So, of course, they didn't factor that into their economic picture. Um, they also didn't factor in the impact on state and local taxpayers. I mean, think about all the money being spent for these Iowa Utilities Board hearings, hearings in North Dakota, South Dakota, other states. Uh, I mean, there, there was so much taxpayer money involved just supporting the various levels of government that have to take time to deal with all these, uh, all these proposals. It also says, what about the economic impact on farmers? You know, they claim that, well, farmers are going to benefit because we're giving them these one-time handouts. Well, what about the long-term impact on crop yields? Uh, what about the impact on your property value? I mean, there's no doubt about it. Having a pipeline, especially a hazardous liquid pipeline like this, running through your property is not going to increase its value. Okay. they also talked about construction jobs. They said, well, 55 percent of the construction jobs will be in Iowa from Iowans. I said, well, you know, I'm just going to say I doubt that. I mean, maybe something will change, but I doubt that because during the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, anecdotally, and this is based on at least 20 different uh, examples, it was consistently demonstrated that only one out of every 10 license plates at a construction site was an Iowa license plate. So, anyway, um, we'll see where this goes. Uh, South Dakota is weighing in now. Uh, the, the whole situation is getting more and more dicey for the pipeline companies, and that is a that is a tribute to the fact that uh, that people getting involved and weighing in and being persistent can pay off. That's good news. I want to talk about something else. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about toys. All right. You know, I I think I've I think I figured out our problem, folks, or at least one way to, to look at it. We are a nation obsessed with toys, big toys, fast toys, um, elaborate toys. We like shiny toys, things that things that are bigger, faster, more elaborate, shiny. We like that, and every year, uh, especially during the um, you know, the cringe the, the I, it's very cringeworthy to me, the Christmas quote shopping season. Ouch. You know, every year we're we're especially that time of year, we're eager to acquire the next shiny object that catches our fancy or to buy it for our kids. You know, whatever it is that Wall Street's advertising, we know we gotta have it, right? <laughs> so I've got a I got a friend that kind of epitomizes this. Um, <laughs> every couple of years he's um, he's afflicted with a new recreational obsession. So the first time I remember this was it was canoeing. And he bought all the latest bells and whistles. He even had a, a sail rig for the canoe. He bought everything you could possibly want for a canoe ride and a canoe camping trip. I mean, I don't know what it cost, uh, but then that that uh, obsession was replaced eventually by bicycling. And again, the spandex, the fancy bike, all the gear, everything. You know, again, I don't know how much money that cost, but it was pretty impressive. And then, I mean, I think I think the next obsession was archery. I kind of lost track of it after a while. And, you know, that kind of spending is, well, it's encouraged, right? You know, Wall Street loves this. Anytime somebody goes on a binge, uh, you know, binge buying a spree like that, Wall Street smiles. Uh, They they like it. Um, You know, they make more money. And, of course, it's considered good for the economy because that's how we measure the economy, right? GNP. Anything spent at all helps improve the GNP. So, you know, money spent on drugs. Uh, psychiatrists, divorce attorneys, uh, cleaning up a Superfund site, weapons contractors—you uh, know—all those count as positives in toward toward the GMP. Uh, I, I digress, though. Okay, so before I talk a little bit more about the big toy picture, we got to delve a little bit into some American history because everyone loves American history, right? Well, as long as we don't talk about uh, the enslavement of black people or the attempted genocide of the natives. let's go all the way back Uh, i would say that uh, you know early american settlers honestly they weren't so much focused on toys it was survival and when the first europeans invaded this continent and and yeah mr columbus let's admit it it was an invasion you weren't welcome Uh, it wasn't a discovery sorry um you know but back then the stuff that people had and took with them and created was more about tools than toys but you know over time the tools kept getting more and more elaborate Let's talk about trees as an example, okay? Back in the late 1800s, you know, cross-cut saws began to replace axes. And then it turned in, well, it really wasn't until the 1960s that uh, saws were replaced by chainsaws. And, and I mean, I, I've used a chainsaw. It is truly an amazing tool, very helpful, very efficient but wait, um, you know, forget about chainsaws because uh, now we've got these huge tree harvesters. I love the name, tree harvester. Sounds like an ant. Uh, these are machines that cut down, delim, and chunk up an entire huge full-grown tree in under 90 seconds. Actually, 1 minute and 29 seconds, according to the research I've studied on this. That's defined as progress. Okay, That's also why 80,000 acres of forest are wiped out each day across the globe. Now, of course, accompanying uh, humanity's capacity to more quickly eliminate a forest, we've seen these great advances in how quickly we can plow up land for farming. You know, so 50 years ago, roughly, the um, mantra, fence row to fence row" came out, and that was the mantra for successful farming. And that's mostly the way farm policy still works today. You know, farm, farm subsidies tend to support bigness, both you know, big farms and uh, big equipment. Now, the same can be said for human mobility. Again, tying all this together, you know, early Americans built these roads, built roads to replace pathways, and then railroads to supplement roads, and then, of course, in the 50s, 60s, interstate highways. And we also started building airports, bigger airports, more airports, even airports in the countryside between small towns. And I've been involved with some of that. And actually, we've been able to defeat some of those really you know, badly proposed airport ideas. You know, but most of the time, people standing in the way of mobility expansion have lost. Railroads, interstate highways, most people who have tried to say, hey, we don't want this on our land, have lost. And that's, that's very sad. So, you know, again, because we have been, uh, you know, a government run by big interests, with big ideas, for bigger and bigger toys. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and again... In terms of transportation systems, uh, the one we're dealing with right now in Iowa, and I talk about this a lot, I just talked about it, carbon dioxide pipelines, that's a 2,000-mile transportation infrastructure that would, again, condemn a whole lot of farmland here in Iowa. Again, just in Iowa, 2,000 miles of this network. So, okay, back to trees. I'm I'm all over the place here, folks. Bear with me, back to trees. Instead of selectively cutting down trees, um, You know, the industry now practices what's called clear cutting. So, you know, instead of removing only enough trees to assure a sustainable ecosystem, we're now witnessing the disappearance of 15 million trees per year across the globe. You know, and I I know very few uh, of you are going to agree with me that a tree harvester is a toy. Uh, And I get it. (laughs) You know, I guess life life without a refrigerator or a washing machine or a few other conveniences... That would be a lot different, a lot more difficult. I get that. But let me offer you a definition of adult toy. And I'm not talking about something you might pick up at the lion's den. That's our our Midwest adult uh, uh, store, chain store. And by the way, I've never been there, never will. But, you know, from adults, adult toys, as I want to define them, first of all, uh, they reduce the amount of human effort needed to perform any particular task. And that's one reason, okay, that we're an unhealthy society. We we don't do the things we used to do. And, you know, we can, we can join health clubs and of course health clubs, uh, health club memberships have really skyrocketed. You know, you know I, I, I'm, I'm remembering Congressman Earl Blumenthal uh, saying once to me, and he's probably said this to a lot of people, but I remember it. Uh, how many Americans this afternoon are stuck in traffic on their way to a health club to ride a stationary bicycle? So yeah, these toys reduce the amount of human effort Maybe that's good. Oftentimes it's not. Second, adult toys tend to satisfy our fascination with shiny new objects. It's so much more appealing to build something new than to fix it, right? I mean, we all like to get a new thing, and, you know, fixing something up is kind of tedious. Uh, I, I can tell you lots of stories about that. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I have pe- people poke fun at me all the time for my 25-year-old wallet that's covered with duct tape. Uh, they poke fun at me for my 38-year-old bicycle. Actually, I've had two uh, two bike shops tell me that I had to get rid of my bike. This was like 20 years ago. I still have it. Uh, <laughs> if they knew I had this um, 41-year-old basket made of birch bark that I used to hold my keys, glasses, wallet, that has been in continuous use for 41 years, they would probably tell me to get rid of that too. But um, I don't really fall for the shiny object thing. <laughs> so I'm hanging on to this stuff because I don't want to see it go to the landfill. And it has... It has you know, value to me personally. The third thing I want to say is adult toys, especially the new ones, they tend to be fast, often loud, and again, they're pretty, they're shiny. So, yeah, yeah, some of these toys are useful. I get that. Um, yeah, the most obnoxious watercraft ever invented, in my opinion, the jet ski, can also be helpful when it comes to, for example, example, a rescue effort. Okay. But the bottom line is, in the wrong hands, even useful tools become toys. And when the hands that operate them are motivated by greed or profit, or an unbending commitment to what we call capitalism—what which I call the endless growth model—you know those toys uh, can be very badly misused. You know, I said a lot of our obsession with toys is about comfort, speed, cleverness. Well. It's also about defending the status quo, about defending that comfort, that speed, that cleverness. And that means it's about weapons. Um, You know, guns at one point in our history replaced bows and spears. Guns were one one reason that, of course, the Europeans were able to conquer the the American continent. Um, Cannonballs, grenades, those helped uh, um, uh, supplement guns. Tanks as well, and then of course you know our, our arsenal of deadly toys continued to expand. Uh, we built the A bomb, woohoo, uh, and then hydrogen bombs, and who knows what else is in the nuclear arsenal. But there's currently fifteen thousand of them, you know. And it's not hard to see that this trajectory, uh, this trajectory, this obsession with toys, whether they be simple ones or weapons of mass destruction, that it does not end well. You know, a a nation built on the acquisition and expansion of material stuff is doomed to fail and to fail gloriously. You know, especially given what's happening with our climate uh, and especially given the continued existence of 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world. You know, it's not too late to change our direction, to replace material values with, generally speaking, what I call spiritual values. But we really ought to start today. Because it's urgent and time is not our friend. So let's grow up. Let's um, only use toys when they really are tools. And, you know, when they satisfy a genuine recreational purpose that is not harmful beyond our own, beyond our environment, beyond our community. That's my sermonette for the day, folks. Uh, when we come back uh, from a short break, Carol Rose Spalding is going to join me. We're going to be uh, discussing her new book, waiting for Mr. Kim.
1: On top. The no refa so Latino Boss. I just might have to push the button. Oh, I don't care how big your missile is. I don't care how big your missile
0: is. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community.
2: At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766
0: welcome back to the Fallon Forum Ed Fallon with you here folks hey thanks again to our sponsors and partners including the Catholic Peace Ministry That's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. Catholic Peace Ministry focuses on nuclear disarmament, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. You can learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Klipscham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. Hey, I want to welcome uh, Carol Rose Spalding to the uh, program. She's the uh, writing and English prof at Drake University, and she has just finished her first book, Waiting for Mr. Kim. Hello, Carol. Hello. Your background as a Korean American um, is, is kind of a, a big part of why this book exists and what it's trying to accomplish.
1: Right. Um, I don't actually see myself as Korean American, but I do have um, a Korean American background or heritage, as you might say. And um, the book is kind of a way for me to understand that part of my heritage, because growing up, you know, my mom was a Korean American woman who was born in the Bay Area and then um, raised um, us in Fresno, you know, with a Caucasian husband, and Fresno was very white at the time. So it was really a matter of her trying to fit into that environment. And um, yeah, she tried to be a white suburban housewife. (laughs) And so I didn't really learn very much about, you know, the Korean side of her. Um, She didn't talk very much about her childhood. Um, She did not have a happy childhood. And um, so she was reluctant, you know, to talk much about it. So I grew up with a sort of mixed sense of who I was, racially speaking, and culturally speaking. And the book was a way to sort of understand my mom's side. Mm-hmm. And, and
0: it's a novel.
1: It's a collection of stories. Yeah, collection yeah. of stories. But the but... stories are linked. And so it sort of has a little bit of a narrative arc to it. Because we follow, starting with Grace's uh, Grace's mom, um, you know, based on my homine or grandmother, um, and then um, spanning almost a hundred years to where uh, Grace um, herself is an old woman. So, um, and then um, several of the decades in between. Mm.
0: Yeah, fascinating. And, and uh, just regarding the title, title mm-hmm. "Waiting for Mr. Kim." Who is mm-hmm. Mr. Kim, and why are we waiting for him?
1: <laughs> I had been waiting for him for a very long time (laughs) finally the book is out. Um, No, Waiting for Mr. Kim is the title story of the book, obviously, and it's the third story in the book. And I do recommend that if you're going to read any of the stories, that would be the one that you could start with. Um, So it is based on what I call a story seed that my mom sort of dropped um, many years ago when she explained that at the age of 14 – she was betrothed to an old, I'm. we're talking about 60 plus, uh, <laughs> Korean bachelor um, whom she was expected to marry when she came of age. And part of the reason for this was because her two sisters had failed to marry Koreans. <laughs> what they did was they went down to the shipyards, found themselves husbands, one African American and one Chinese, ran off with them. And um, never looked back. Scandalous. And so the parents decided that was not going to happen again. Um, and uh, so she um, was supposed to marry this Korean bachelor. Um, obviously, that did not happen. And you'll have to read the read the story to find out why. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Mr. Kim was the man she was sort of "quote unquote" waiting for yeah. or betrothed to.
0: Being told to wait for. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I mean, some of. You know, my, my, my grandparents came over in the early 20s as well from mm-hmm. Ireland. Mm-hmm. And uh, my grandmother was um, quite the matriarch. She basically had iron fist control of a very large segment of uh, of the family. And she was also pretty insistent that her kids really ought to marry Irish people. Mm-hmm. Irish, well, she had three sons. Mm-hmm. They really ought to marry Irish women. Mm-hmm. Only one of them did. Mm-hmm. And it was not my dad. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, you know... At some point, she moved beyond that uh, prejudice. Mm. Um, I don't know whether that happened in your case as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, with my grandmother? Yeah. Um, I would say, I'll tell you what, my, my parents married in uh, 1959. And that's what the story White Fate is about. Um, and neither side of the family came to their wedding. Wow. So they married it with a very small group of, um, because, from their in, little church. In protest. In protest, mm. because it wasn't okay for either side, on um, another side's opinion. Once the grandchildren started coming, they softened. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was technically illegal in 20 states um, for a white man to marry a yellow woman. Yellow. Um, yes. With and, meaning meaning uh, jaundiced. <laughs> no, I mean Asian, okay. uh, but that but that term wasn't right. yeah, even sure. used back then. Um, not in California, uh, right. where my parents married, but um, technically, you know, their kids were the product of miscegenation.
0: Wow.
1: You know, in 19, mm. I was born in 1962, so.
0: So we've come yeah. a long way, and yet in uh, just the last few years, we've saw, we saw, we seen some incredible video footage of, of hate crimes against Asians. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, at some point, I want to believe that humanity is going to at last put behind, put behind it any kind of discrimination against any particular uh, subculture of people. But mm-hmm. here we are, you know, seeing Asian men and others getting beaten up.
1: Mm-hmm. It's funny how uh, you know history tends to repeat itself in some ways. And uh, you know it—it's scary that it's come back because I think um, you were safer maybe 30 years ago to be Asian than really? than you are now and what, in some ways. What's
0: caused that to happen?
1: Um, well, I think there's just permission to hate sort of overall, and I also honestly think it has to do with um, uh, racial identity and identity in, in culture in particular. Um, has become very essentialized where we, we just, mm-hmm. um, we prefer to think that people embody their identity in ways that it, you know has some sort of biological mm-hmm. basis, which it, it really doesn't, it's cultural. And um, if we think that people are responsible, you know, uh, that their behavior is related to their identity, then we're going to hate them in a way that we wouldn't, uh, that we wouldn't if we saw it as more of a cultural construction. Um, So I think, you know, we see somebody, we're mad at them, they're Asian or they're black or whatever, and we hate them for, you know, this thing that we see as essential in them, which is their race. Okay. Race will disappear. It's going to disappear. We're becoming brown. So we're not going to be able to use that anymore. The sad thing is that the difference-making function... Is never going to disappear. We're always going to find a way to say you are not me. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you know, that's that's that team. Yeah. And so that's the thing we have to work on. We don't have to work on race so much as what is it that makes us insist on our differences? Mm-hmm. I think that's very and astute. Us.
0: Very astute. And, but it's interesting to me that 30 years ago things were better in terms of anti-Asian bias. Well, and,
1: and, I mean. <laughs> You know, I, I, I don't know statistics, but I do know that I was part of, you know, a scholarly movement that was unearthing all of these, you know, uh, literary voices from the ethnic past. Because my Ph.D. is in ethnic American literature. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was this powerful time of like discovering these stories of, you know, Asian Americans and American Indians and African American mm-hmm. literature and so forth, where we really felt like, you know, we were making this difference Um, that would change everything. Mm-hmm. And when my parents got married in 1959, their pastor said to them, you know, someday the whole world will be brown. You know, your children are the Even children of the future. Wow. Yeah. You know, I
0: mean to me, it's, it's partly interesting that we've seen these incidences of anti-Asian bias, given that we have a vice president right now who is part Asian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We had a very, very strong presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket last time, mm-hmm. uh, or, or running for the, in, the, uh, in the primary, mm-hmm. Andrew Yang, mm-hmm. who continues to me remain very active politically. Mm-hmm. I think the mayor of Boston is an Asian woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have Asians on the Republican side. Yeah. Uh, uh, Andrew, I'm, I'm Vivek Ramaswamy. Mm-hmm. And, um, blanking, oh, now Nikki Haley. You know, we have, we, mm-hmm. have, we have Asians running on the Republican ticket. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the side of the political conversation that tends to be very hard on immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's, maybe we call that progress. <laughs> well,
1: in a way, I mean, there's a lot of immigrant communities who are very, very Republican. And mm-hmm. some of them are very pro-Trump. Um, in part because it doesn't matter who the president is. If they're the president, you support them because that's what you do when you go to someone else's country. You know, that that sort of attitude, Mm. you know, does exist.
0: Now, I know that uh, within the Methodist Church, which I I used Mm -hmm. to be a member of the Methodist Church, uh, uh, there was a a strong Korean presence within the Methodist Church.
1: They were good missionaries.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's how they... Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. And uh, the... um, there was a the very second day of the Great March for Climate. Actually, we stayed at a Korean Methodist Church, mm-hmm. and the hospitality was it just blew us away. We were so we were desperate for it because we'd had a really really rough first two days, mm-hmm. and then they they pulled they 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 just turned out the red carpet for us mm-hmm. wow, with food with an uh, an eleven piece ukulele band. Mm-hmm. How's that <laughs> 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 ukulele a ukulele Korean Methodist band? Yes, anyway, love it. so I I mean the there there is still a I mean, there's still a. I, I, I assume there's still a, a Korean community in the U.S. and in, in pockets across the U.S. And
1: right here in town, I mean, there's a wonderful yeah. Korean community here and Korean Methodist Church here. And I actually know of them through friends who have adopted Korean children. Mm. And you know, they've been wonderful. I go see them at the um, sometimes volunteer at the booth at the um, Asian Festival in May mm-hmm. and so forth. And so yeah, and those communities are everywhere, mm. you know. Um, and we tend not to think of them as being in Iowa because Iowa is, you know, something else on TV.
0: And this may be a bit of, a, a bit of a stretch for our, our, our conversation, but again, as a, as as somebody with a deep Korean background, what when you when you look at the um, the tension between North and South Korea these days, mm-hmm. do you see any possibility of uh, of that ending? Of, of, of I mean, I you know, when I was a kid, it was the the, the the Protestant uh, Catholic conflict in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. and yeah, Northern Ireland is still separate from the Republic. I, I think personally that's probably going to change eventually. But mm-hmm. but the tension, the uh, the the conflict, the 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 killing that existed between the two, that's kind of that's gone. Mm-hmm. Is there any hope that we might see a similar, you know, dissolvement of the um, dissolving of the uh, of the tension between North and South Korea?
1: Well. I personally don't feel qualified to comment on politics of you know the Koreas. Um, I do sense that there is a longing, you know, among some. Um, And you know, a good friend of mine, uh, Marie Myung Ok Lee, wrote a book recently um, that talks about the Korean War from the Korean perspective. Mm -hmm. It's about a Korean American family, and uh, the father is a doctor, and he came from Korea during the war, and it gives an incredibly interesting perspective about what happened for Koreans and how America mm. betrayed them. Mm. So um, it's called The Evening Hero. It's a gorgeous novel. I recommend anyone
0: read it. It's an epic novel. Most American knowledge of the Korean War comes through the uh, series MASH, I think. Right, right, and just <laughs> news
1: reports that are yeah. probably you know, um, somewhat skewed. So it's, mm. it gives an interesting Korean perspective of the war. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Well, is uh, what else can you tell us about the book and again I want to encourage people to uh, to check it out where, do, where would they go to find or uh, find a copy or learn more about it
1: uh, Well I mean it's going to be available in all you know bookstores and at Barnes and Noble and on Amazon and that sort of thing but of course I recommend you know the local uh, bookseller so we have in our community, several fine uh, bookstores. My launch will be at Beaverdale Books. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really recommend anyone who wants to come out. The launch is on September 28th at 630. There's also Storyhouse Book Pub and Reading in Public, um, both wonderful bookstores. and um, Or just go to your local library and check out a copy because it will be there mm-hmm. as well.
0: And you're going to be traveling to San Francisco where a lot of the... Actually, and even the mm-hmm. cover—the cover of the book depicts a, a little a section of the Golden Gate mm-hmm. Bridge. <laughs> so you'll be yeah. traveling there. For any, 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 any uh, ex- expectation of how. The book will be received out there
1: well it, it got a great review from the san francisco chronicle nice. um, so i was pleased to see that and i'll be i'll be speaking at uc berkeley and then i'm actually doing an event at angel island which is where my parents came through so that's the immigration station that's on the west, the coast. west coast version. Yeah. Of Ellis island. they have a okay. national park there um and okay. so um they uh, i'll be doing an event there as well and then lots of other places bookstores and so forth out there, and then I'll be at Prairie Lights um, on November. Oof,
0: That's in Iowa City. Ninth, yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: And then I'll be at the Luther College um, Festival, and then at the Okoboji Writers Conference.
0: This so. reminds me of my book tour. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's a busy You're time. You're all over the place. Right. Yes, you have right. to be. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we, we, if, we, if we have time for a short uh, reading for the book, or if there's any some, one last thing you'd like to tell us about um, about the uh, the stories.
1: Um. Well, uh, there probably isn't time for a reading if I haven't really prepared one. I will say this, um, they're they're not a quick read. Um, They are, and I don't mean this in any sort of a snobbish way, but they are literary, meaning that they work on many, many levels. Um, And so there's a lot of um, sort of subtleties and nuances that go into telling these stories and so i think it's not necessarily an easy read but i think if you give the stories a chance you'll start to put together a picture of grace's life over a century and you get a taste of each of the decades as we move through so i think it's kind of fun as this historical landmark of, of these different decades as well
0: so okay yeah and yeah. i I've, I've i've just read one chapter i'm looking forward to reading the rest good so and uh yeah. Well, good luck, Carol.
1: Thank you. Uh, folks, we've been
0: talking with Carol Rose Spalding, and we'll be back in a minute with more conversation. Going to give you an update on some climate stories, including some good ones. I know I don't normally talk about good stuff when it comes to climate change, but there's a couple of good things to talk about back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Years ago, chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Café.
2: Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent, nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org.
0: Welcome back to The Fallon Form. Thanks again to our sponsors, including Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westerm Optometry. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so climate. Oh, yeah, we've already talked about carbon dioxide pipelines, which to me is a climate story as well as a an eminent domain story and a public health story. But there's a little bit of good news. I, I mean, I okay. So the U.S. Open. It is becoming commonplace for for people protesting the inaction on climate change to appear at sporting events and protest and. Um, they're getting a lot of negative pushback and this happened during Coco Gauff's uh, semifinal match at the U.S. Open. Uh, four, uh, four young people got up and they were chanting and they basically shut down the match. Uh, I, I, they, I, I was surprised they were able to, able to do that from the stands, but anyway, they were loud enough, I guess, where officials had to uh, postpone the match for I think like 40-45 minutes. And uh, Coco later said to reporters, quote, throughout history, moments like this are definitely defining. I believe in climate change. I wasn't pissed at the protesters. I always speak about preaching what you feel and what you believe in. It was done in a peaceful way so I can't get too mad at it. Obviously, I don't want it to happen when I'm winning up six to four and one zero, and I wanted the momentum to keep going. But hey, if that's what they felt they needed to do to get their voices heard, I can't really get upset at it. Oh, well, good for her. Um, that was in contrast to the responses from some in the, uh, in the stadium. Uh, people booing at them, yelling at them, calling them names. Anyway, class act, uh, Ms. Gov. Well done and congratulations on your win. Uh, a little more good news. Um, President Biden canceling oil leases. That uh, the Trump administration had authorized in uh, the Alaskan National <laughs> Alaskan National Wildlife Refuge. There we go, and um, so that you know that's going to block drilling in millions of acres in northern Alaska, and of course we should expect there to be a pushback from the fossil fuel lobby on this. It's, uh, it's a it's it's a long uh, it's a long go long running battle between oil interests. And uh, those who, well, those who believe in science, I guess. And uh, there are some of the native Alaskan tribes who were very concerned about the prospect of drilling are are pretty happy about it. Uh, There is a kind of a rub here, of course, because um, Biden did approve the um, Willow Oil Project that uh, ConocoPhillips had been clamoring for. That was approved earlier this year. And that's been my problem with President Biden all along. It's like, do one good thing and do a bad thing. Do a good thing and a bad thing. And, you know, we're at a time where you only can do good things on climate. You can only do what is consistent with science or we're going to be in trouble. Anyway, so that's um, that's a, a very positive development. We'll see what happens uh, going forward. All right, some bad news. Uh, I, I just became aware of this uh, recently, blast fishing. Uh, Apparently, there are people, fishers, who use explosives uh, to blow up the water and kill fish. This is illegal. Uh, And of course, it doesn't, just like, you know, when you spray a pesticide or something, it doesn't just kill the one thing you don't like. In this case, the blowing up of the water doesn't just deliver the fish that you want. It kills a whole bunch of things. Uh, And it's very common in Sri Lanka, off the coast of Sri Lanka, for some reason. It's happening in other places of the world. Um, And uh, one observer says, quote, It often turns the ocean murky with blood and is strewn with fish that are missing eyes and other organs. Those fish that are wounded swim off to die elsewhere. Their carcasses wash ashore days later. I mean, that is horrific. And that is, I mean, talk about toys. I mean, do you really have to blow up the ocean in order to catch fish to make a living? I get it; it's quicker, it's easier. Come on! I mean, I, it's 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 disgraceful to think that that would happen. And of course, you know, you know, again, you're killing everything, and then it's also blowing up coral reefs. And again, a lot of animals, fish that aren't right there where the blast is occurring, are injured, blinded, wounded. Um, if they don't survive at all, they end up dead and washed up on shore somewhere. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's done with dynamite or other explosives. And it's uh, taking place, again, not just in Sri Lanka, but around from South America to Asia and Africa and even into Europe. Uh, according to one study, there were 850,000 blast fishing incidences between 2006 and 2016, in Hong Kong, Malaysia, and the Philippines alone, so I'm I'm kind of shocked that I'm just hearing about this now. I mean, maybe I'm maybe this is a story that everybody else is familiar with that I just happen to miss. But this is horrible, and you know, I I've, I've been aware of the huge fishing operations that that catch entire colonies of fish at once and often decimate the fishing industry of local communities, but this is uh this takes that to a whole new level. Again, um, a new toy, a new way that we can blow up the ocean and kill fish. Um, gosh. All right. So uh, yeah, it's <laughs> hard to move on from that. So uh, the Great Salt Lake, I've never seen it. But uh, here it's pretty impressive. I have been to Salt Lake City, but never got out to see the lake. But apparently now is the time to do that because it seems to be disappearing. Uh, environmental and community groups uh, in Utah have uh, sued state and other officials um, over, the, uh, over the apparent collapse of the, of the lake. It is the uh, largest saltwater lake in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, it has been shrinking pretty steadily over the years. And that's uh, in part because water has been diverted away from the lake to irrigate farmland and for industrial purposes. And of course, everybody's favorite use for water lawns. But uh, I don't, uh, one thing that I don't understand is how do you take salt? I maybe it's not that hard. Again, there must be a desalination process to go on to make that water available for irrigation. You can't just dump salt water on your lawn unless you want to kill it. And again, if you ask me, go ahead and kill your lawn. Once it's um, dead, you can go ahead and plant some food or something useful. Uh, but, you know, the mega drought across the uh, U.S., especially in the southwest, has, um, has uh, been wreaking additional havoc on the Great Salt Lake. So the uh, defenders of the lake are arguing that unless some real major action is taken soon, this lake... Great Salt Lake could decline beyond recognition within the next five years. And, uh, you know, it's, it's already exposing what's referred to as a dusty lake bed laced with arsenic, mercury, lead, and other toxic substances. Yeah, I, I don't know how we think we can keep going on like this. Um, the, the fact that there is a lawsuit going on, I'm encouraged by that. Just as I was very encouraged by the lawsuit in Montana recently, Montana youth suing the state for not only inaction on climate change, but also actually acting to make the problem worse. So we'll see what happens. Um, uh, Ben Abbott, he's an ecologist at Brigham Young University in Utah, was quoted in the Guardian saying, quote, "The the resulting toxic dust bowl would be one of the worst environmental disasters in modern U.S. history. And as the Guardian continues to point out, despite such warnings, officials have failed to take serious action. Uh, You know, the the folks behind the lawsuit, some make that case and say, quote, we are trying to avert disaster. We are trying to force the hand of state government to take serious action. That was a quote from Brian Mensch of Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment, which is one of the groups involved in that lawsuit. Ah. yeah, we'll see where it goes. Um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic because, again, we've seen some pretty significant action at the, at, uh, at the, at the judicial level lately that has, um, that has um, helped uh, in the battle to take climate more seriously. Speaking of taking climate more seriously, uh, there is a big climate march coming up next week. This one's in New York City. It's in response to the UN Climate Ambition Summit. Uh, this is a gathering of world leaders uh, who are discussing a commitment to phase out fossil fuels, and uh, thousands of people will be uh, will be uh, participating in the uh, the march. Uh, there, there. I mean, we um. Again, this is uh, nine years ago. This very month, there was a huge climate march in New York City. Maybe some people remember that there were about four hundred thousand people in attendance. Uh, I was among them. Uh, the participants of the Great March for Climate Action. We learned about this march uh, when we were still in California, maybe Arizona, and decided to that we would take four days off. We, were, weren't, we weren't sure where we'd be at that point. We were hoping we would be in Ohio, Indiana. We were in Indiana. And we decided we'd take four days off to go to New York, participate in the march, and then come back and continue the great march for climate action uh we um you know we we thought it made sense to do that uh it was i I will say in retrospect it was very very difficult to do to take that kind of a break um just because it meant we ended up having to walk a lot of 20 mile days to make up for it uh but i you know i remember the i remember the march it was i don't think this one's going to be as big but bigness doesn't always mean better of course uh uh, maybe it'll be more well covered by the mainstream media. Okay, I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm dreaming right now. I know, but uh, the most important thing is maybe it'll begin to have an impact on the discussions about the urgency of, of the climate crisis. But my experience uh, nine years ago, uh, I mean, it was, it was such a huge crowd. We, we were, um, the, the, the Great March for Climate actually had, uh, we had a little spot in the parade, and. Uh, there were so many people participating that we were, we, we waited about four hours to start marching. <laughs> so uh, we were way back uh, on the west side of Central Park and just kind of hanging out, uh, waiting for, waiting for the um, start of the march. And when it started, uh, yeah, it was um, it was powerful. It was a powerful, powerful experience. And uh, again, I think the message sent was pretty, pretty important. Um, I'm hoping, it's hard to measure these things, but I'm hoping a lot of good things came out of it. Uh, I know for us on the march, it, uh, it gave us a sense of being connected to a bigger movement. You know, when you're out there marching on, you know, dirt roads and, and rural communities uh, day after day, it's hard to, you kind of almost begin to feel disconnected from uh, some of the um, more uh, prominent things happening. On, on climate change. And so, yeah, this was for us a chance to really feel connected. Uh, there was a funny incident from that. You know, again, marchers were afflicted by something that Miriam Kasia, our mayor, yes, we elected a mayor, uh, something that Miriam called marcher mush mind. And I remember uh, when a handful of marchers were staying at a friend of mine's, and she told me later that... Um, <laughs> she, she thought, she thought they were all clearly afflicted with some, some kind of strange um, mentality from just being on the road for so long. Um, uh, she made all this food and she'd offered it to them, and they said, "No, thank you. We've got peanut butter." <laughs> so, anyway, uh, yeah, and I am for myself too. I just remember feeling um. Kind of relief that I could take four days off, but a little bit of apprehension knowing that when I came back, we'd be doing, you know, consecutive twenty-mile days in the Appalachian Mountains. But the, um, the 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 incident I remember the most is is entirely tangential. But to me, it was um, it was uh, uh, it was very memorable, and it involves uh, a milkweed seed. And I, I'm, I'll share. I'll read this from my book. I'll share it with you. Uh, After the march, I head off on my own, wanting to get a good night's sleep before heading back to Detroit to continue the march. I feel oppressed by the sheer volume of steel and concrete that is Manhattan. Block after block, nothing but steel and concrete with barely a plant or tree in sight. Suddenly floating in front of me is a milkweed seed. Where did it come from? Is there a milkweed plant nearby? Perhaps even a whole colony of milkweed? Is someone planting milkweed to attract monarch butterflies? I follow the seed, sometimes glancing behind me, upwind, hoping to catch a glimpse of some patch of green that might suggest the seed's point of origin. I keep pace with it, smiling, then laughing, not caring that people might think I'm a crazy man. I chase the seed down the street. It slips around a corner, then slides under a magazine rack then flirts with diving into a subway entrance. I'm ready to pursue it underground when it veers off across Broadway, across a raging stream of cars and cabs. All I can do is watch the seed drift deeper and deeper into a land of financial and material make-believe. I wish I could assist its journey. I feel slightly guilty that I didn't catch it when I had the chance, catch it and plant it somewhere safe and protected. But that would have interfered with destiny. Perhaps this seed will find its way to a rare patch of fertile Manhattan ground and sprout new life next spring. Perhaps that plant will go on to breed hundreds more plants that spawn generations of milkweed, blessing the world with beauty and feeding thousands, perhaps millions, of monarchs. Whatever happens, like the plants reclaiming the parking lot at the BP refinery south of Chicago, this small floating Magical seed gives me hope. Life conquers despair, I say to myself as I think of Sean, and wish she had been here to share this moment. That's a reading from uh, Marcher Walker Pilgrim, and again, I, I hope the Climate March in New York this coming week is as successful as the one nine years ago and has as many powerful memories for people as it did for me. Hey, this is Ed Fallon, folks. I got to take a short break. When we come back, Kathy Burns is joining me. We're going to be talking about invasive species. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back, folks. Ed Fallon with you. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, Kathy Burns is with me, and we are discussing invasive species.
2: We are, and I was in France in in a uh, 1992, or something like that, and uh, visiting a woman who ran a truck farm, and she had these white strawberries, and she wanted me to bring a little plant back with me to the U.S. <laughs> And I said, well, like, I really can't do that because that's, that's not allowed. You can't just take a plant from one country on a plane to another country. And she said, well, that's, that's okay. You'll get away with it. Just put it in your bra. And I wouldn't do it. And um, uh, anyway, invasive species are a real problem. I'm glad I yeah. didn't bring that little strawberry.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder how many invasive species are snuck into the U.S. inside someone's bra.
2: Well, there, there's so many places that you could sneak well, them. Guess, Bras yeah. would be a pretty good choice.
0: So, I, um, I mean, how, how, is it, this is a big problem. How many are we talking about? A few species, a lot?
2: Well, there's a new study out by the UN's... Um, Division called the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. That's Ooh, mouthful. too much. Yeah. Uh, more than 37,000 alien species are now known to have been introduced around the world, and about 200 are establishing themselves Wait, so each year.
0: Two, 200 new ones each year? That's... That's what okay. I
2: read. That's yeah, the way I understand it. Huh. Um, the the UN warns that a million species are now at risk. The species that were already here uh, are now at risk of going extinct, threatened by not just invasive species, but a combination of pollution, climate change, and invasive species and uh, land use change.
0: So it's not just about um, illegals uh, taking our jobs. It's invasive species taking our taking our. Or other plants. Well, I'm being facetious here, of course. It uh,
2: it's it's a problem because it threatens the biodiversity mm. of ecosystems that we count on wherever we live in the world yeah. to to stay alive. Well,
0: and we have we have some experience with that here. Um, I mean, my quote favorite uh, invasive species is the is uh, tree of heaven.
2: It's not your favorite. It's your least favorite. Well, that's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've had we've had a tree of heaven, also known as uh, lanthus and it it was growing in the side of the yard, uh, and a neighbor has a lot in there. Well, we yard. we had one
0: growing on our property, mm-hmm. and I, I, I cut that. I cut it down with a handsaw.
2: You did. Oh, yeah. And then <laughs> its massive mat of root system, which obviously had spread out all through a good chunk of our backyard. Fortunately, not a lot of spaces where we're growing food. Um, these little devil trees just keep popping up, and we have to keep pulling them. So they, and, yeah, they, and they just grow and grow and grow.
0: At a neighbor's place where we did have two garden beds, uh, very close to a, a, a tree of heaven, the um, the root system under there was so thick that it basically stunts and it, this is i guess isn't there a toxin coming to the roots
2: there there is
0: um yeah. and then it's also a mat it's like it's, it like forms like a mat
2: they take over they have this uh, impenetrable thicket is the language used uh, yeah. by the Iowa DNR and it is they do they do produce toxins that prevent the establishment of other plant species, so uh, they're bad news. They look kind of pretty, sort of, you know, almost tropical, they're, uh, but kill them right now. Now interestingly,
0: growing right next to the, 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 the major uh, tree of heaven offender in the neighborhood is a couple doors up, and growing right next to it is a patch of Japanese knotweed.
2: That is one of the other most invasive species in Iowa, according to the DNR. Uh, introduced from Japan to the United Kingdom as an ornamental plant in eighteen twenty five and from there to North America in the late nineteenth century.
0: Yeah, with with Japanese nawi, no, at least I will say this, you can actually eat it.
2: Well, but do you do you?
0: I have. Okay. I haven't um in your presence. There are too many but... <laughs> too many other things that we can eat. that yes, I know. Taste
2: delicious and yeah, but wonderful. Not, it's
0: not, you, you get a, you get the shoots when they're young. They're kind of a rhubarbish sort of thing. A little bit of sour. Mhm. Not bad.
2: Okay, we'll make Not a pie. Bad. Make a pie, all right. So they also <laughs> spread thickly. They form dense thickets and exclude native veg- vegetation. Um, they are most threatening in riparian areas or watery mm. areas um, where it can survive severe floods.
0: And, and we've also got some bittersweet out here. But, bittersweet but is that, that on we've the been able to control, too. and it's kind of pretty.
2: Well... <laughs> But we don't. Our bittersweet is not the Oriental bittersweet. The,
0: well, that's the, not. It's oh. the
2: it's the kind that produces the little orangey, orangey plant. That's that's that, the Oriental bittersweet. That's the more, well, you know, maybe we have the male version. I guess I never. Thought yeah, that's of that. what I thought. Okay, yeah. that might yeah. be. That might be. Um, the little the little seeds are cute for fall decorations, but it is extremely invasive. Um, the, the good news is that the DNR can recommend some ways to. Uh, eliminate these if you've got them prevention is the best way as soon as you see them actually (laughs) the the DNR site does reference spray okay and when you look up what sprays are recommended it is glyphosate however the non-chemical management for for instance the tree of heaven is to gird established trees. Oh, kind of choke it. If you can't just cut them down like you did, manly like with your <laughs> saw. <laughs> That's right. Um, you you girded around the base of the of the. St- and to
0: be clear, st- I, I used the I used a I used a handsaw, but I mean this tree was twenty five feet tall it or was more, up or maybe there. thirty. I had to use a telescopic saw, mm-hmm. and we had to get the cars out of there, and then drop it very strategically.
2: Well, you 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 got the top limbs off bit by bit and yeah. then you went for the trunk so yeah, and it i did
0: really, have when i when i had the final i mean this trunk was it had, this tree had to be 25 years old
2: it was a big one
0: I, I i did have uh, your son was kind enough to come out and uh, and chop it up with this uh, chainsaw
2: yes so, he was thank yeah. you paul
0: yeah with his toy his mm. toy chainsaw
2: no that's your earlier <laughs> one he uses it to help his grandma it's a great, tool, her
0: great space. tool yeah yeah we also have um we have uh there's so many we can talk about invasive species all day but Kathy, I think we're going to call it good. Kathy, thanks for joining us, folks. Uh, Thanks to our guest today, Carol Rose Spaulding, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy, and myself, Ed Fallon. And thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, and Western Optometry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. We'll be back next week, folks, with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.